Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. Our scripture reading today is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, the verses 4 through 6, and these words also form the text for the sermon today. Let us hear the word of God. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thus far the reading of the Holy Word of God. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word to our hearts. Dear friends, greetings are important. If someone came up to you with a big smile and a hug and said how glad they were to see you, you could conclude from that that the person genuinely cares about you. Unless, of course, the person was just acting hypocritically, like Judas Iscariot in the garden. Conversely, if someone does not smile at you and only mumbles a few words of greeting and doesn't shake your hand, you could conclude that he or she does not care for you at all. Unless, of course, they're just having a bad day. The point is, greetings are important. How we greet someone says a lot about ourselves and what we think about the person whom we are greeting. And that's especially true when it comes to greetings from God. Last week, we began a series of sermons on the book of Revelation, we considered the first three, chap- three verses of the first chapter of this book, the so-called prologue or introduction. And in this introduction, John does three things. First of all, he tells us what the book is about. It's a revelation. It's an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Secondly, he tells us how it came to be. It came from God, and it was mediated by Christ, through an angel, to John, who was to convey it to God's servants. And thirdly, he tells us that those who read and hear, and especially keep the words of this book, will be blessed. Well, following this, in verses 4 to 6, which we just read, John extends a greeting. And the fact that this book contains a greeting reminds us that Revelation is not just an apocalypse. It's not just a revelation. It is also a letter. And it's a letter addressed by a real man to real churches in a real historical setting. And what is more, as a letter, it not only speaks about things that will take place in the future, but it also speaks about things that were taking place at that time, which is key to how we interpret this book. Now, this greeting is similar to the greetings of any letter written during the first century A.D. First of all, it contains the name of the author of the letter, in this case, John. 
Secondly, it mentions the recipients of the letter, in this case, the seven churches of Asia. And thirdly, it includes a greeting, which can be summed up with the two words grace and peace. Only this greeting is extended on behalf of the triune God, and it expresses the great love and affection that God has for his people. Well, with this in mind, let's consider this greeting under the theme, John greets the churches in Asia. And we'll see that this greeting is, first of all, thoroughly drenched in Trinitarian love, and secondly, it is immensely comforting for the people of God. So as mentioned, the first thing that someone in the first century did when writing a letter is to identify himself, and the writer of this letter is no different. He writes, John to the seven churches in Asia. Now, for many centuries, the consensus among Bible commentators is that the one who is writing this letter is none other than John the Apostle of our Lord, also known as the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. But not everyone agrees with this. For various reasons, they say that someone else called John wrote this epistle, but it was not written by John the Apostle. But there's no reason to doubt that John the Apostle wrote this book. Several early church fathers attest to this fact, including Irenaeus, who lived around 180 AD and who hailed from Sardis, one of the churches to whom this letter is addressed, and who also knew Polycarp of Smyrna, one of the disciples of the Apostle John. In fact, it's been claimed that no other New Testament book has a stronger or earlier tradition about its authorship than this book, the book of Revelation. Now, when John wrote this book, we can't say for certain. Some say he wrote it during the reign of Emperor Nero, that is, before the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And those who hold to this view claim that Revelation does not look forward to the return of Christ so much, but it more prophesies of the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place shortly before John wrote this book. But the vast majority of commentators hold to the traditional view that John wrote the book much later, during the reign of Emperor Domitian, around the year 95 A.D., And that means that John was quite old, probably well into his 90s when he wrote this book. Now the second thing that John does in this greeting is he identifies the people to whom he is writing. And they are, as mentioned, the seven churches which are in Asia. Now today, Asia is the name of an entire continent stretching from China to Europe. But in the first century AD, Asia was a province in the Roman Empire, roughly equivalent to the western portion of modern-day Turkey. The so-called seven churches were located in this province. And we find the names of these churches in verse 11. Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, significantly, the city of Ephesus is mentioned first, and that's probably because Ephesus was the principal city in this region. According to an early church tradition, it is also the last congregation that the Apostle John served before his exile on the island of Patmos. Uh, 
The other cities are mentioned in geographical order, forming a kind of semicircle, proceeding northward from Ephesus. You've got Smyrna and then Pergamum, and then in a southerly direction to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, which is the direction a messenger would have traveled had he started out from Ephesus. Now, the fact that there are seven churches is also significant. The number seven, as we'll see throughout this book, is an important number, and it appears no less than 54 times. To be sure, there were more than seven churches in Asia. We can think, for example, of the church at Colossae and Herapolis and Troas. But these seven are singled out as being representative of all churches in every age and place. And we know that because seven in Scripture is a number of fullness or completion. Think of the six days of creation in Genesis 1, followed by one day of rest. What is more, at the end of each letter to the churches, our Lord says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, meaning the churches of every age and place. So when John addresses his letter to the seven churches, he's ultimately addressing all churches around the entire world in every age. And you'll notice how he greets them with the words grace and peace. Grace to you and peace, he says. Now, although there's no verb in the Greek text, the sentence is a normal way in Greek of expressing a wish. So what John means is this, may grace and peace be given to you, or may you receive grace and peace, or even I pray that you will be blessed with grace and peace. Now these two words, grace and peace, are often found together and in that order, either at the beginning or the end of every New Testament epistle. So what do they mean? Well, grace is undeserved favor. When God saves us from our sin, or does anything for us, he does so out of grace, meaning he does so not because we deserve it or have merited it, which we haven't, but because he chooses to do so and it pleases him to do so, and that is grace. Peace is the sense that one is right with God, and as such, it's the result of grace. The person who has received the grace of God experiences peace with God and the peace of God. One commentator describes this piece as, and I quote, the reflection of the smile of God in the heart of the believer who has been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and is the result of grace. Now you notice that this grace and peace proceed from the triune God. First of all, it proceeds from God the Father. John writes, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now that's probably an allusion to Exodus 3 verse 14. There God revealed himself to Moses as the great I am, emphasizing God's unchangeableness and self-existence. And the idea is that God is not dependent on anyone or anything for his existence. He has always been and he always will be, which is the special quality of God the Father. Secondly, this grace and peace, John says, proceeds from the Holy Spirit. He writes, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, some commentators suggest that the seven spirits are actually seven angels who go forth to do the will of God. But the expression certainly refers to the Holy Spirit. And that's because grace and peace can only come from God through the Holy Spirit. 
What is more, since both the Father and the Son are mentioned in this greeting, it would seem odd that John would leave out the Holy Spirit. Now, by calling the Holy Spirit the seven spirits, John is most likely drawing from Zechariah 4, the verses 2 and 6. And there Zechariah, in a vision, sees a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. And he says that two olive trees stood beside it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. And when Zechariah asked what this meant, an angel said to him, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So the seven lamps represent the Holy Spirit. And by means of this vision, God was assuring Zechariah that the temple would be rebuilt not by the power of man, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now John, who was of course very familiar with the Old Testament, takes that exact imagery and he uses it here. He calls the Holy Spirit the seven spirits. Why? Well, for at least two reasons. First of all, to remind his readers that there's a fundamental unity between the Old and New Testaments. The old is built on the new. They speak the same language and they proclaim the same message. But secondly, he does this because as we've seen, the number seven is a number of fullness, a number of completion. And as such, it's an appropriate designation for the Holy Spirit, since the Holy Spirit is the ultimate spirit. Finally, John says, this grace and peace is also proceeding from Jesus Christ. He writes, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the king's of the earth. Now you notice the, nor- the order here. Usually when you read about the triune God in scripture, it's the order of the father, who's the first person, then the son, who's the second person, and then mention is made of the Holy Spirit, who's the third person. But here the order is father, spirit, and then son. So why is this? Well, partly because, as we hope to see next time, leaving Christ to the end provides a perfect segue to the song of adoration that follows in the second part of verse 5 and verse 6. But also because, as we saw last time, Christ is the theme of this book. And so it's fitting that John should focus on him. Now you notice that John here employs three phrases to describe the Lord Jesus, all three of which are derived from Psalm 89. He's called the faithful witness. The wording here is probably borrowed from Psalm 89, verse 37, where the moon is called the faithful witness in the sky. Only here, it's not the moon, but it is Christ who is the faithful witness. And the word for witness in the New Testament is the same word from which we get our English word martyr. Christ was the ultimate witness of the truth of God. He fully proclaimed the truth of God to sinners, and he paid paid for it with his own life. He's also called here the firstborn from the dead. And that phrase, too, is borrowed from Psalm 89, specifically in verse 27. And there God is quoted as saying, I will make him, speaking of Christ, I will make him my firstborn. Now, in ancient times, kingship passed to the eldest son. And so that was for Christ as well. God says he will make his son, Christ, his firstborn, meaning the heir to his throne. But John refers specifically to Christ as the firstborn from the dead. 
And that simply means that when he rose from the dead, he did so as the representative of his people. Just as he rose from the dead, so those who die in him will also rise. He is the guarantor of their own resurrection. He is the first to rise, but after him and in him, there will be a second and a third and so on until the full number of God's elect are raised up and enter into everlasting glory. Finally, he's called here the ruler of the kings of the earth. That phrase is borrowed from Psalm 89, verse 27. And there we have this verse. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest, or we could say the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Now, for the people living at the time that John wrote this book, the emperor of Rome was the greatest power on earth. And as such, he was the ruler over lesser kings like Herod and others who ruled over different regions of the Roman Empire. But now John says that Christ is greater than the emperor of Rome. He, not the emperor of Rome, but Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. In fact, later on in this book, Christ will be called the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we see that John's greeting is drenched in Trinitarian love. The grace and peace that he pronounces on the churches of Asia and through them the church of every age and place proceeds from the Father who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the first begotten from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now needless to say this greeting is of immense comfort to the original readers of this book and still to believers today. And that brings us to our second point. The comfort of this salutation is conveyed in the descriptions of each person of the Holy Trinity. As we've seen, God the Father is said to be the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And that means he is not dependent on anyone or anything for his existence. He is the eternal God who never changes. Now what a comfort that was for the original readers of this book, and for us too. Persecution was looming, just as it is looming today. False teaching was making inroads into the churches. And yet in spite of all of this, God remained the same. He is the eternal I am. And that means he is still in control. Nothing can happen to them apart from his sovereign will. He will preserve his church until he comes again. But it also means that his word is the same. His promises are the same. His warnings are the same. Nothing has changed. The world around us is changing all the time, but God remains the same. His word, like he himself, abides forever. And that phrase, who is to come, is also comforting. It speaks to the fact that this God, who always was and always will be, is coming again in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. As John also makes clear in verse 7. And when he does, he will make everything right. He will vindicate his people and he will destroy those who are attacking them. And therefore, they need not despair or be discouraged. God, the Holy Spirit, is described as the seven spirits, as we've seen. Seven, as we've seen, is the number of fullness. And since the Holy Spirit is given to all who believe on his name, believers possess the fullness of the Spirit of God. And that means they also possess the fullness of his work. He who regenerated them, converted them, justified them, and sanctified them will also glorify them. 
And he will teach them. He will lead them. He will guide them. He will remind them. He will be their constant companion and helper throughout life. What is more, the Holy Spirit is described as the seven spirits that are before the throne of God. Now, as the third person in the Godhead within the Trinity, the Spirit is not before the throne. He is on the throne. But here in this passage, he is said to be before the throne. And that's because John is talking here about the Spirit as given to Christ and the church. As the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit reveals and applies all the work of Christ, including his death on the cross and his resurrection to us. The Holy Spirit is thus before the throne in his sevenfold fullness, ready to go out and to reveal Jesus Christ to his church. But that's not all. He's also ready to go out to strengthen and equip God's people as they confront the enemies of God. One commentator writes this, and I quote, Being perfect and complete, the Holy Spirit is all-sufficient to empower God's people to conquer through faith in Christ. The sevenfold Spirit provides the power by which Christ's churches serve as lampstands shining a gospel light into the darkness of unbelief. End quote. Finally, God the Son is described as the faithful witness. And as believers, we are called to be witnesses to God's truth in this sinful and wicked world. And since Christ is the faithful witness, we have a perfect model to follow in this regard. We also have one who can sympathize with us and strengthen us when facing persecution. Christ was faithful to the end, and he paid for it with his life. And he will equip and enable us to be faithful as well. He's also described as the firstborn from the dead. Due to persecution, the people to whom John was writing may very well have had to pay for their witness with their lives. But Christ is the firstborn from the dead. And that means death will not have the final say. Those who die in him will not really die. Their soul will go to be with the Lord. And there it will remain until the day of resurrection, when the soul will be reunited with the body, and we shall live and reign with Christ forever. Lastly, as we've seen, he's described as the ruler over the kings of the earth. That means all earthly kings are under his control. Despite their great power, they cannot harm us unless it be his will. Therefore, we need not fear. Oh, do you see what a rich comfort there is here in this greeting for believers in Jesus Christ? In this greeting, each of the three persons of the Holy Trinity puts his divine benediction on each one of his people, assuring them of his never-failing love and faithfulness. And what makes this greeting even more amazing is that it is totally undeserved. Because who are we? And what have we done that we should deserve such a greeting from God? Absolutely nothing. We have sinned against God in Adam, and to our original sin we daily add our actual sins, sins of omission and commission and thought and word and deed. We don't love God as we should, nor do we keep his commandments. We sin against him all the time. And the seven churches of Asia were not much better. As we hope to see in a few weeks, although some of these churches had commendable qualities, none of them were perfect. In fact, they all left much to be desired. 
The church of Ephesus had left its first love. The church of Pergamos tolerated false teachers. The church at Thyatira tolerated wicked practices and immorality. The church at Sardis was not watchful and their works were not perfect before God. The church at Laodicea was lukewarm, inducing the Lord to want to vomit them out of his mouth. And yet the triune God came to them as he also comes to us today. Not with a message of condemnation, which is what we deserve to hear, but rather a message of grace and peace and love. You say, how is that possible? Well, it's only because of Christ, of course. He died so that we might live. He was cursed so that we might be blessed. He was cast out that we might draw near. No wonder that immediately following this greeting, John breaks out in doxology, as we hope to see next week in verses 5 and 6. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Again, we hope to look at those verses more closely next week, God willing. But for now, I just want to point out what John does here. He pronounces the greeting of God upon the churches and then he immediately sings the praises of Christ. Why Christ? Because John understood that it was only because of Christ that we can enjoy the favor and the blessing of the triune God. Oh, how grateful, therefore, we should be for him. For apart from him, God will not and cannot bless us. For that is what we deserve. We deserve to be cursed. But when we are in Christ, God looks down upon us in mercy and he greets us in his unmeasurable love. Oh, my friend, are you in Christ today? If not, then God does not greet you with grace and peace. And one day he will come and he will condemn you to an everlasting eternity in hell. And if that is the case, then I urge you, repent and believe on his name today. And God will love you. And God will speak peace to you and bestow on you all the blessings of his great salvation. Amen. Dear friends, it's our great joy to be able to preach to you the word of God every Sunday on this station. If you are blessed by, or if you have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Please take the time to write us a short note. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road, and Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can send us an email at banneroftruth at frcna.org. And please indicate the call letters of this station. If you take the time to write to us, we'll gladly send you, free of charge, a wonderful booklet entitled Faith of Our Fathers. In this booklet, Pastor Neil Pronk, the former radio pastor of this program, explains the so-called doctrines of grace, and we hope that it may be a rich blessing to you. Please note that we do not send out CDs of our radio messages. However, you can access and download all of our messages at any time from our website. And our website is 
dot banner of truth radio that's all one word banner of truth radio dot com support for this program is provided by the free reform churches of north america for more information about our churches including where you can find a church nearest you please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed in your heart a desire to help us to offset the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can go right to our webpage and make a donation right on the webpage. Our webpage again is banneroftruthradio.com. Thank you for listening. And now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.